Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1956. Can John Wayne remake the Western? That'll be the day. The film? The Searchers. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the show where we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all times, 2007 edition, to see if they really are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how they influence the films that we watch now. Uh, this week we are watching The Searchers, uh, which is a film I've never seen before. Have you ever seen The Searchers? I have. I have. I've been tangling with The Searcher for a long time. Ooh, all right. I'm very excited to talk to you about this. This is my first kind of entry point into, I think, John Ford and John Wayne movies. So a lot of stuff there, but actually a lot of similarities between this film and the film we talked about last week, which was In the Heat of the Night. Now, I watched a lot of Green Book. I did not finish Green Book, um, but I didn't see the similarities in what I saw. I just felt like it was more Driving Miss Daisy than it was In the Heat of the Night. Really? You got a road trip movie through the South with one schlubby white guy who screws up everything and one... He's not schlubby. You don't think that... What? I don't think he's in very good shape. Who? What? Vigo. Vigo? What? No, he gained 40 pounds for that film. Really? I, I still think he looks pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that entire movie is shot with his like belly out like a basketball. Well, maybe you're right. All right. <laughs> Are we watching this? Did you watch, no, I did, did you watch I did. The Lord of the Rings on accident? I did. <laughs> Uh, but I will say that I did do some more research uh, on Beverly Hills Cop, and In the Heat of the Night was a direct influence on this film. Uh, he said that he wanted to create a film that was a mix between Beverly Hillbillies and In the Heat of the Night. Just saying I'm continuing my Be uh, my Beverly Hills Cop is In the Heat of the Night conversation. But how does Troop Beverly Hills fit in? I mean, that, I mean, it's Clearly a, a, a direct homage. <laughs> um, a lot of people weighed in online and brought to our attention that 
what we confused this movie for was to Sir with Love. Because we said that we thought that in the heat of the night he was a school teacher, but it's actually uh, to Sir with Love in which uh, Sidney Poitier plays a inner city school teacher. That would make sense. I've never seen that film either. I should see that film. And Amy, someone also brought up to the point that uh, there was no Simpsons uh, reference to this film. But in Futurama, uh, there was a Mr. Tibbs reference when they went to a soda, uh, like uh, like there was a soda advertisement. And uh, the slogan was, they call me Mr. Pibb. And that was brought to our attention by uh, Kenny Menino. I'm kind of surprised Mr. Pibb has never just done that. Right? Why? It would be a weird connotation. But I mean, there's so many people like us who know the catchphrase without yeah. knowing the film. Well, like, I like yeah. it. I mean, look, I would yeah. be into it. And it was interesting that a lot of people were watching this film for the first time and talking about how it does resonate now. And it feels, you know, uh, socially relevant. And, you know, even though it was up against films of the time like Bonnie and Clyde and um, The Graduate, this is a movie that um, may not have as much acclaim, but in a weird way. Uh, still feels as important as the day it was made. Maybe it's not as flashy uh, that it kind of gets lost in the mix. Um, I also want to point out for people who are having trouble finding these movies, there's a great site called justwatch.com. You choose your country, you type in the movie you want to watch, and it searches all of the possible legal streaming websites available in your area. Well, Paul, I think we had a really interesting year of conversations in 2018, but it is now 2019. Yes. It is now the beginning of a new year. And with that in mind, we asked people last week to call in with their New Year's resolutions delivered in a John Wayne accent. Let's get inspired. Hello there, Pilgrim. It's my intention in 2019 to hop into my saddle and fight institutional mess. My desire for this year coming up is to finally be able to use my SAG and AFTRA cards for more than just getting some screeners. Hey, oh, you. Better drink more tea. That's right. My New Year's resolution is to drink more tea, Pilgrim. I think what I'm going to try and do in the coming New Year is get myself certified as one of them fancy yoga teachers. Well, Pilgrim, my New Year's resolution is to shave every other day because I hate having facial hair. And when it gets really long, shaving it is also a pain in the ass. Well, I'll tell you, little fella, my horse is getting a little bow-legged there. So I think I'm going to go ahead and try to lose about 20 pounds. And that was the worst John Wayne accent ever. I love it. Those are great resolutions. Now, Amy, let's get into it. The year is 1956. As the world turns, premieres on TV along with The Price is Right. Parents could now buy disposable diapers and Teflon nonstick frying pans. Elvis Presley appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show and enters the music charts for the very First time with Heartbreak Hotel. Rocky Marciano retires, the only undefeated heavyweight champion of the world with a perfect record. The first computer hard drive is invented by IBM. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev gives a secret speech denouncing Stalin. And the Alabama bus segregation laws are declared illegal by the U.S. Supreme Court. It's also the year that John Wayne comes out with a little film called... The Searchers. Amy, 
Tell me, who else is in The Searchers? The Searchers. Well, you have Vera Miles from Psycho, the woman that I yes. didn't think I'd seen in other films, but actually totally had. In this film, uh, as Laurie Jorgensen. As her beau, you've got Jeffrey Hunter, the one-eighth Cherokee foundling who is a member of the family to everybody except for John Wayne. You've got Ward Bond. Uh, we just saw Ward Bond in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. As Bert the Cop, here he is as the Reverend Captain Samuel Johnson Clayton. You've got Natalie Wood as the stolen girl, Debbie Edwards. All right, and tell us a little bit about the plot of the film. Yeah, so the plot of the film is that three years after the end of the Civil War, a Confederate soldier comes home, Ethan, to his brother, his brother's family, and no sooner does he get home than a Comanche tribe led by an, a chief named Scar murders and kills basically everybody uh, and kidnaps the two girls. He goes on the hunt for the girls. He spends years of his life finding the girls, ultimately with the goal only of finding the last surviving girl, Debbie Edwards, to probably kill her because he believes that she has now become a full-fledged Indian squaw. I mean, this movie is the quintessential Western, right? You could argue that when people look at Westerns, this is probably the highest one on their list. How do you feel about it? Well, yeah, you're already kind of nailing the complicated thing about The Searchers. This has become the big film that everybody pictures, the yellow sand of Monument Valley, the blue skies, the horses in the background. It looks exactly like the Westerns we picture in our head, but it was the kind of contradictory Western at the time in yeah. ways that it's hard for us to, I think, to really, to really see, because I feel like I've always grown up in the anti-Western, like subversive Western school. So like the subversiveness of this one started the subversiveness of everything I've grown up with, but it was really different at the time. Well, that I think is a really interesting point because I was looking at this film, trying to really grapple with it because I know it's so influential to most of the filmmakers that we've talked about on the show from Martin Scorsese to Steven Spielberg. Uh, they, you know, all consider this film to be like the, one of the best films ever made. I've never seen a John Wayne movie before. This is my first foray into seeing a John Wayne Western. When I was a kid, whenever I saw John Wayne on TV, I'd be like, Ooh, that's boring. And I'd leave it, leave the room. My grandparents would watch it. I don't even think my dad watched John Wayne movies. So I have none of that like preconceived notion of the Duke. I know who he is. Of course, I understand his legacy, but this is the first time I've ever seen him act. And I think one of the big things about this film is when it came out, you know, many people are like, oh my God, it's such a different role for him. But for me, it's interesting. I'm kind of fascinated by his performance. Uh, it's a weird kind of stilted. It almost feels like He's reading a bit off of cue cards. Like, he's not as smooth as I imagine John Wayne to be. I mean, are you deep in the world of John Wayne? I'm not incredibly deep either. I think I saw this around the time I saw Stagecoach. Because, right, here's the thing with John Wayne. Like, he is a man whose body of work is huge. He did tons of films. A lot of them were in that kind of good guy saving the day role. You know, whether he was a soldier or a cowboy, it was sort of the same kind of thing. And I haven't seen most of those myself. I've seen, like, his outliers and his best ones. Right. So I've seen the best of him and not the average of him. And so I feel like that conflated with some of my, like, complicated personal feelings about John Wayne, you know, as, yeah. like, a right-winger, as the guy who was really mad at High Nude. That he, he is, in a way, like, bad Ethan Edwards for me. And I have to do things like remember that it's a cowboy movie, a Western movie, where Ethan Edwards shoots three men in the back. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, because you do not do that. 
Right. And I think that you and I probably are much more, you know, aware of the films, like you said, that are subverting these tropes. And so it doesn't seem too insane to me. I mean, this feels in many respects like a version of Taken. It's a revenge flick. It's like Charles Bronson to me. We've gotten so far in this idea of the anti-hero that there's nothing really shocking about what he's doing. Like, yeah, that guy tried to kill him and he shot them in the back. All right, fine. Like, I felt like it was all kind of even there, you know? Yeah, I mean, because when you look at this character of Ethan Edwards, a man who's on this, like, endless quest that he wants to do solo, you know, to rescue a woman, to save something, sort of, but really also just for his own revenge. I mean, not only is it definitely Taxi Driver, you know, like, Paul Schrader's talked about that a lot, this being, like, his favorite movie when he wrote that film. It's also, you know, Apocalypse Now. It's also, like, so many films we've already seen just in this show of, like, I'm the guy who's going to go it alone. You might not like me. I'm not going to even try to be a good guy. Right. This is who I am. So the movie comes out in 1956, and I think it's a time where the country is changing. You know, we mentioned earlier that it's the end of the bus uh, segregation laws. And I think this movie, in a way, is kind of showing the old and the new school. Like, Ethan is part of this old school mentality. He hates, you know, Native Americans, no matter what, you know, so much so that he literally shoots um, an Indian in the eyes to mess up his ascension into heaven. You know, I mean, think about that. He hates them so much that he learns their customs in order to fuck with them more. That's next level. It really is an unlikable protagonist, but he's paired with very much in the buddy cop vein. He's paired with someone who's like an eighth Comanche. And so it, this is this kind of push and pull between them, you know, very reminiscent of In the Heat of the Night, too. We're talking about a lot of these themes that are coming up. But I feel like at the end of the day, this movie is not making a statement necessarily on the state of America as much as people want to believe that it is. I think it's kind of doing it, but it's a little halfway. I don't know if all those parallels hold up. And I don't want to become in here and be like, I don't like Westerns. I do like Westerns. I just feel like the themes are a little different when you watch it without context. Well, you know what? Speaking of context, like one of the things that I thought was so interesting was I was reading a lot uh, to prepare for this episode about how when this film came out in 1956, a lot of people and critics didn't even really pick up on on the racism element of it. Interesting. Which when we watch it now seems so, so blatant. But at the time, it was almost like like this movie was just a hot bath set to the national temperature. Do you know right. what I mean? Like his racism didn't even seem that unusual. Well, that's what and I'm so s- people didn't really pick up on the filming a critique of it. Right, and I feel like a lot of the people who have been influenced by it brought their own kind of love of John Ford and their history with John Wayne into it. I think that, you know, we talk about Spielberg and Godard and Scorsese. I think they're bringing this attitude. They're almost uplifting the film in the way that they speak about it. Um, And then they think they do, each of them kind of does their own interesting versions of this film. But I think this is a movie that's almost buoyed by some of our biggest directors in, from our childhood, uh, pulling this movie with him and going, no, no, this is a very influential film to me. Probably because when they were growing up, this is the movie that was playing on the TV for them nonstop. Right, because here's the part that we will never be able to fully get. We'll never be able to fully curl inside their brains and get, which is when the, when these filmmakers who worshipped it saw The Searchers, they were m- much more familiar with like John Wayne than we are now. Yes, And they brought with it, I assume... 
a love for the actor himself to this film. When you have this synergization of like an actor people worship doing a part that people are uncomfortable with, you love that character more. You know what I yeah. mean? You bring this love to it. You're like, well, let me find some empathy for this man. What a brave, bold choice it was for him to, you know, to kind of deconstruct his image in this movie. I mean, it's tough. Like, John Wayne, John Wayne is a complicated man. Like, yeah. John Wayne, most of his wives um, were Spanish speaking. There's stories on the set, you know, they filmed this movie with um, a lot of like local Navajo actors, how he would let them use his private plane. He let a two year old Navajo yes. go use his private plane because she was sick to get her to a hospital. They called him the man with the golden eagle or something like that. They gave him some sort of uh, <laughs> nickname. Exactly. So he is the man who's capable of that. But he's also the man who gave like this kind of infamous interview to Playboy where he said, I don't think we did anything wrong in taking this great country away from the Indians. And he said that our so-called stealing was just a matter of survival because the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. I mean, when you look at John Wayne in this film, he still is doing all the things that I guess you would equate with John Wayne. yes. He shot someone in the back. But at the end of the day, he is victorious. He learns a lesson. You know, he he may not be the fully white-hatted cowboy. Maybe it's more of a, a dust-covered white hat. You know, it, it. I watched it twice, by the way, because the first time I watched it, I was like, huh, I don't know if I totally get what's going on here. And then the second time I watched it, I had read some articles in between, and I, and I kind of was able to reframe my point of view because the movie is beautiful to look at, and it is epic and uh, really well done. I mean, 1956, it, there's no doubt about this movie being a good movie. Did I feel compelled by it? Was I like a riveted? No. But I think part of the things that uh, interfere with that, you have this character of, you know, Martin Pauly, who is one-eighth Navajo, who's a white man. And watching it for the first time, I know Jeffrey Hunter from Star Trek. And I go, oh, that's a white man. And I don't, it takes me even a beat to get to the fact that he is playing a Native American. Like, you know, so, and and he's supposed to be a young guy, but he's like 30 years old. Like, there's a lot of those little changes that when you're watching it for the first time, it is hard to be like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be getting here. Yeah, I mean... I don't know Jeffrey Hunter at all. Like, okay. I think I know him mostly from this more than anything. Right. Because I've seen this film a fair amount. And honestly, this rewatch, I liked it less than I ever have. And I was surprised really? by that. Like, you know, it was in the back of my head watching it was actually our episode talking about Schindler's List. Oh, interesting. Because the searchers, this time what really, really popped out to me is like, not so much like the racism and like the quips and like the that'll be the day, which mm -hmm. I remember what I remember watching this film very much in class, in college, in a theater with people having no idea how to react to it. You know, like I, I had no idea how to react to this movie when I was 18. Right. I was like laughing every time he said that'll be the day because it is sort of funny. But then what really jumped out for me this watch is all of the comic relief. Yeah. And how clumsy it is compared to what we were talking about in terms of the Schindler's List comic relief, which is sort of built out of the tension of the scene and it doesn't right. really undermine it. But here there's so much comic relief that just undermines everything else that's going on. And all the characters are sort of ridiculous. There's yeah. A like, lot of men with terrible accents. You know, most is this kind of like big character who feels like the town drunk that you've seen in other Westerns, you know, but he, I mean, God knows what he is. I, I couldn't even break down exactly what, what they were going for there. Yeah. I think he was based on true character, but I don't know. I mean, he would be, whatever he is, I want to see Mike, John Malkovich play him. <laughs> but then there's also these, these kind of like iterations of him, like 
Charlie McCoy, the guitar guy who just shows up to try to marry Laurie Jorgensen, because he also is a little weird and a little very off, weird. And he doesn't seem to be speaking like a human being. Here, this is his reaction when Laurie gets a letter that Martin is engaged to an Indian woman. I'll read it. So he married a Comanche squaw. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> My golly. <clears throat> she wasn't near as old as you. How old does he think I am? Well, I think this goes to my theory that everything kind of feels half-baked. It's like, all right, so you're doing these bigger moments that you would see in a traditional Western, but then you're subverting it in very small ways. You know, you're not like, it, this movie isn't like a total reinvention of the Western. It just kind of is maybe the slight introduction of the idea of an anti-hero. I mean, cause is this character any different than Liam Neeson and Taken? Cause Liam Neeson, he's killing people recklessly. You know, he has a defined point of view. Like I wouldn't say that he is uh, a racist or has anything against the people that he is after before he's after them. But once he's on that journey, it doesn't make a difference. He's shooting people in the back. He's breaking arms. I would say the one thing that makes a difference is that John Ford has built in really Ethan Edwards equal when you look at Sky the Chieftain. Because right. like there's there, that character is more complicated, I guess, than the enemies in Taken because Scar says flat out like, your people have killed my sons. I do this because you have also attacked me. Right. And he has a complete point. You know, in this film, I feel like, to me, it's a little sad when John Wayne bursts in and finds that Scar has already been killed and just scalps him. I thought it was so anticlimactic. You build up this interesting character. You don't even have your two characters have it out. He is killed off screen, but I guess that was more because of the time. You couldn't show, you know, someone getting hit, but you don't even see him take the bullet. You know, Martin kills him and you really just see him from the legs up. And the next time you see him, he's dead. And it it felt very like, huh, okay. Yeah, but didn't it feel a little bit like, huh, okay, like on purpose that 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 John Ford was like, he's not really the bad guy here. It's weird. It's like, yes, I get why that may be controversial at the time. Like, it doesn't even make a difference that that guy was killed by Martin or if he was killed by Ethan. He was just killed, and that's the world that we live in. But again, as a film, it, it's a little anticlimactic. Then don't build up that character. Then let, let's not even see Scar. Let's not even understand him. And, and by the way, you know, John Ford did do a great job of populating this film with real Native Americans, except for Scar, who is a German-born uh Jewish man. Yeah, who kind of specialized. His name was Henry Brandon, and he sort of had the bright blue eyes like everybody else in this film does. And he specialized in playing a lot of foreign parts. I think he played Fu Manchu. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, the last part of this film, or the, you know, the third act is really like 10 minutes long. I mean, it, 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 there aren't much obstacles in this, you know, last bit of the film. And I think it leaves you just going like, huh, okay. You know, and it reminded me there's elements of Unforgiven. I think Unforgiven does a lot of what this movie is doing better. I mean, and that's also because, you know, there's a lot of different things at play there. But I I feel like this movie has elements that reminded me of Unforgiven. Yeah, I was actually thinking a lot watching this of a movie that just came out, Destroyer. Oh, yeah. Have you seen Destroyer? I have not seen it yet. You know, Destroyer also has this 
vengeful, solo, modern-day cowgirl type of protagonist, Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. who's on this quest for vengeance uh, against people who, like, killed people she loved. But she's also complicit in it. She's not a good person. And Is Destroyer kind of like a, a more indie version of Peppermint? Uh, it's not nearly so racist as Peppermint. Um, but- <laughs> so Peppermint is more like the Searchers than than Destroyer. <laughs> yes, yes. But that Peppermint's going to take that as a compliment. What are you doing? No. <laughs> but it did. But it did get me thinking about also how how rare it is to see a female character who's so unpleasant. You know, which is kind of what Karen Kusama is leaning into. Is like, you know, a person can walk into a scene, shoot someone in the back, and have like a quip, right? And like. If it's a certain type of hero, we might be like, cool dude. And if it's another type of hero, we might be like, wow, she's really screwed up. She must be traumatized. Right. You know, and so there's like this idea of like what kind of what kind of anti-hero do we like? You know, I kind of felt the same way with You Were Never Really Here, that Joaquin Phoenix film. Like there's a, a similar – I always feel like that film is doing what the real version of Taken would be. You know, it's it, it's – taking away kind of the glamour violence of it and putting it in this really stark world and reality. And it's interesting that that's now what we're doing now. We're we're kind of de-glamorizing our anti-heroes a little bit more. Yeah, they're still there. Yes. But they're like a little less cool. Although what's interesting is like all four of these movies, you're like Taken, The Searchers, Destroyer, and You Were Never Really Here, all have like an innocent little girl who's at the core of it, who drives everything. And I think in most of these movies... Not destroy that girl's good. The girl's is really bad, uh-huh. and that always makes me dislike the movie a little bit more. Like I, okay, this this is where I'm just going to say that I um I have never really enjoyed Natalie Wood as an actress, and I have not seen her entire body of film. Okay, but in the in the films I have seen, I have never really liked her. By the way, right now I'm in such a Natalie Wood wormhole because I'm listening to the Fatal Voyage podcast, which is a 13 part series about her m- death, suspicious death you aboard this. You said murder. I well, I mean, I don't want to. You know, look, there's no proof. But if you listen to this podcast, uh, it's been really interesting because Lana Wood is a very big part of this podcast. Uh, it's all about Natalie Wood, so it's been really interesting to kind of learn a lot about her. I don't know her work as far as I haven't seen Splendor in the Grass. I haven't seen a lot of the films. You know, so she's like incredibly popular. But I agree. I I didn't see anything here that I was like. Kid, you got the goods. Yeah, I mean, we have both Lana Wood and Natalie Wood in here. Yeah. You know, playing young Debbie at two different ages. I mean, I even pulled a clip of Lana Wood talking when she's talking to Uncle Ethan in the opening yeah. part. Because she's doing the thing that kids do in films that drives me insane. Where a kid just does not talk like a real human being kid. And I I'm, I immediately get irritated at the film. You know, this idealized, I'm, a, I'm just a spunky little darling right. thing. Lucy's wearing the gold locket you gave her when she was a little girl. Oh. She don't wear it much on account of it makes her neck green. Deborah. Well, it does, but I wouldn't care if you gave me a gold locket if it made my neck green or not. And then when Natalie Wood shows up as the same character as older, she still has that very, to me, artificial child actor yeah. way of speaking. Here, let's listen to that. That's this is at the um, towards the end of the film when she is reconnecting with her family. Oh, don't you remember me, Debbie? I remember. I'm always. First, I prayed to you. Come and get me. 
take me home. You didn't come. But I've come now, Nibby. These are my people. Und mehr. Go. Go, Martin, please. And can I just say, do yeah. you hear how her voice changes right at the end? And she's like, Und mehr. Go, Martin, please. Like, she's yeah. suddenly, like, at the race car track or something. This is where I battle with these films. You know, when we watch something like Citizen Kane or we watch something like It's a Wonderful Life, films that were made in a black and white era. This is Technicolor. This is, you know, and this movie is visually stunning. It is beautiful. The sound is amazing. But there's an artificialness to these films. And when you realize, oh, you didn't even need to have that because there are other films that are incredibly popular that didn't have that. It's it's interesting. I, and I think that those things push me away from these films. It, it makes it harder for me to connect to them. I will say I just want to talk about this idea of a young girl and the film that I think is most directly influenced by it. You mentioned it earlier was Taxi Driver and kind of getting us into that. I wanted to hear Martin Scorsese kind of talk about this film in relationship to Taxi Driver. He, he just literally um, acts out the racism, the worst aspects of racism of our country, you know, and it's right there. It's right there. And you could see the hate. You could see it building. It could also understand how he could go that way. doesn't mean... It's the old story that Travis has a fantasy. What makes him crazy and what makes another person not crazy is that Travis acts it out. You see, so this man is acting it out and he becomes obsessive like that extraordinary scene and they're sitting there, they're st- sitting on their horses in the birch trees and the snow is coming down. He says, we'll find them as uh, sure as the turning of the earth. It's like, and he's a poet, you see. He's a poet too. He's a poet of hatred, you know. And he just shows us the worst part of ourselves that's coming out of the late 40s, early 50s. He just brings it right up to the surface. Um, so we have to deal with it. So, Amy, after hearing that, who do you think is worse, Travis Bickle or Ethan? <sighs> I'm going to go with Travis Bickle because you know, there, are, there are traumas that are forced upon Ethan Edwards. And mm. Travis Bickle, I think, selects to create his own. Right. Uh, but, but they're I, both vets of the war that have come back after, you know, who knows what happened to them. They come back with much more racist ideals. Absolutely. And like Travis gets set off because a girl doesn't want to go home and watch porn movies with him. Whereas like the love of John Wayne's life is literally murdered and he right. has to look at her corpse. So I'm on his side. But although what I was. Oh, wait a second. Wait. So you think that that woman is the love of his life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like the, the woman that we see when he first walks into the into his house in the opening scene, the woman who has that iconic John Ford shot of like beautiful woman framed in the darkness of the doorway with the bright sun behind her. What I really love about Martha, who, by the way, um, the actress who plays Martha, the woman that he loves, who gets murdered really early on. um, That's Dorothy Jordan, who happened to be married to Marion Cooper, the writer director of King Kong. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's wife of Kong. Oh, interesting. Well, but just so the audience knows, if you have not watched this movie, that woman that you're describing is Ethan's brother's wife. Yes. So it's not his wife. Like, you know, so it's there. You're you're alluding to like an undercurrent happening here. Yeah. And the way that you see her hold Ethan's coat when um, when he's not even watching. Right. You know, like Ward Bond catches it. Ward Bond sees her holding the coat and, and knows what that means. Yeah. But they really just keep exchanging these significant looks. And his brother, who should be the fulcrum of their relationship as the person who's married to her, related to him always feels like this third wheel in their scenes. Like he's over in the side, like, hey guys, I'm over here. I'm over here talking. Well, which leads me to my question, is Debbie his daughter? Right? Yeah. I was wondering that myself. I mean, because he's been away for eight years. 
The war has been over for three. He comes back. Maybe, maybe. Maybe because he's been gone so long. He gets the kids confused. He like, he's, yeah. And everybody keeps saying, why have you been gone? Right. And he doesn't have an answer. Right. Like one explanation that's not really in the film is like he's been in Mexico fighting the revolution, being like a mercenary. Yeah, I, I read that on cash. I read that in Wikipedia, but that's not really. I mean, it seems more like a theory than it is something that's really put forth by the film. Exactly. I mean, he has the gold doubloons, and um, because to me, so much of this film is almost like a theory of a western. Anyways, you know, right? Because I have a little itch in my brain that's like, well, let's stack up the timelines and does it fit? Yeah. But then this is a film that says Texas looks like Monument Valley. Right. And Texas does not look like Monument Valley, and it's kind of taking place to me in this mythological Texas, this mythological America that isn't even real. I mean, there is no oh, Texas yeah. where like it's just snowing like that all of a sudden. Like, there's a morning where like Martin wakes up and he's shirtless, and then it's like snowing that afternoon and i'm like whatever texas well, is it's not where i grew up but i kind of like that because it's like a fantasy texas well i mean also this movie takes place over five years and you don't even really see the time jumps or i would say the time jumps are not really a well directed or well thought out because you're like oh wait what and when he comes in like oh you've been gone for like over a year like oh oh that's okay that's what we're doing but also just to your point about like what this world is and 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 why Ethan is this way, there is a piece of set dressing that is in the background of the funeral scene that says that Ethan's mother was killed by Comanche. So that's on her uh, headstone. So this character, and who knows who put that there? That could be a prop designer that added that little bit. You know, he could be the illegitimate father of Debbie, he could have had a relationship. We're imbuing a lot on these characters. I think John Ford definitely told John Wayne that there is something there between the between Martha and Ethan. Because he definitely looks at her too long. Oh, there! When I watched it again the second time, I was watching for that, and you feel it. and And I think there's a lot of information in this first, you know, scene. There's so much going on that uh, you could miss it. You can you can kind of even miss the Jorgensen connection because when they go to the Jorgensen, you're like, oh. Right. Okay. Am I supposed to know who Vera Miles is? Oh, yeah. But you saw her there for a second, literally a second at the funeral. She's not really introduced because I was like, am I? did I miss their relationship? Because it seems like they had been dating, but you don't really feel it until later. There's a couple of things here that I don't know. A second watch was really helpful to me. Yeah, I pulled some of the Jorgensen clips because my favorite actor in this entire film is mm -hmm. Mrs. Jorgensen. I, I love her. And I think she has like one of the best lines in the movie. It, it actually happens like on the porch. Oh, I pulled that one. I pulled oh. that one. Let's listen to it right, because great. I love it. She's on the porch having a conversation with her husband, uh, who has the crazy Swedish accent. And they're sort of talking about what is this country that's still finding itself. Don't go blaming yourself for that. It's this country killed my boy. Yes, by golly, I tell you, Ethan, it's... Now, Lars, it just so happens we be Texicans. Texican is nothing but a human man way out on a limb. This year and next, maybe for a hundred more. But I don't think it'll be forever. Someday, this country's gonna be a fine, good place to be. Maybe it needs our bones in the ground before that time can come. Bad time. She was a school teacher, you know. I love that, A, she caps that scene with just bedtime. Like, she yeah. gave this beautiful speech, but it's just one of the many things she will do. And also, I found out over the Christmas break, my aunt came to visit. Uh -huh. you know, like, my family has been in Texas forever. We were right. part of, like, the Austin 300. 
I had heard about this relative. I didn't have the full, full mental picture of him. But my aunt was telling me about this relative I have called Daddy Poncho, who was a preacher who um, kept going back and forth between Mexico and Texas and finally like escaped during the revolution by like pushing himself out on a push cart back to the Texas border. Oh, and wow. so I guess I just see this blonde woman and I get really happy. I love it. Well, I mean, she to me, she is the most, you know, excuse me for using the term, but like the w- most woke person in this film. And she's the most grounded, you know, in that scene where her daughter, Lori, is hearing that her love of her life is engaged to like an Indian squad yeah. accident. Everybody else is sort of laughing. The music is even kind of laughing. But that actress, her name is Olive Carey. She's married to the famous cowboy Harry Carey. Oh, her wow. son plays the son in this movie, Harry Carey Jr. She's looking at her daughter with concern. Like, she knows exactly what this letter means. And in every single scene, she's 100% grounded in what's happening. She even has, to me, what I find, like, in an earlier scene, the scene where we first meet her, the line where she sums up what this movie is about. Ethan. Those girls mean as much to me as though they were my own. Maybe you don't know that my Brad's been sitting up with Lucy and my Laurie's I'd be obliged if you'd come to the point, ma'am. It's just that I know that Martha'd want you to take care of her boys as well as her girls. And if the girls are dead, don't let the boys waste their lives in vengeance. Promise me, Ethan! Well, come on, if you're going with us. Yeah, I mean... I, those are the speeches that I remember from this film more than the witticisms or quips of Ethan in this film. Um, right, and he won't make that promise. And to me, what really stands out when I watch The Searchers now is that it's a film where the women are all living in reality and the men are not living in reality at all. All the doofusy characters in this film that like poor Laurie Jorgensen has to pick from, like who's she going to marry, this yeah. doofus or that doofus? Because like everyone she's in love with is basically a doofus. <laughs> you know, it makes right. me think about the limited options you had as a woman on the frontier. You couldn't yeah. meet that many guys. You had to, if you wanted to have your own kids and your own farm someday, you had to settle for some doofus who was right. going to freak out when you mended his pants. <laughs> I mean, the poor women of this film. And like, there's this thing that also goes on in the undercurrent where horrible things are inflicted on all of the female characters. Horrible things so bad that like John Wayne won't even talk about them openly. And the women sort of will. You know, the right. women are openly acknowledging what's happening to their bodies. You know, they're getting right. raped, getting kidnapped, getting murdered. And when the men try to talk about it, they just like trail away. Like, they literally trail away. Like, here's that clip where John Wayne is on a horse in the snow and he just doesn't even want to finish his thought about the stuff that the women oh, yeah. really have to deal with. Our turning back don't mean nothing. Not in the long run. She's alive, she's safe. For a while, they'll keep her to raise as one of their own until... She's of an age to. Do you think maybe this? Right, he can't even yeah. go all the way with it, which is sort of why I love that that scene is pretty soon followed up with Laurie Jorgensen's just complete impatience with men being like awkward and pansies. Hey, what are you doing anyway? Hey, don't go taking that stuff. Well, it ain't worth the mending. What are you getting so red in the face about? I got brothers, ain't I? Yeah, well, I ain't one of them. Now, looky here, Martin Polly. I'm a woman. We women wash and mend your dirty clothes all your lives. When your little we even wash you. How you can ever make out to be bashful in front of a woman, I'll never know. Now, you talk like a fella just might as well run around naked. Wouldn't bother me nothing. This is a movie that is gorgeous in some scenes. 
and then so cheap looking in other scenes. It really is shocking. Like it's so stage, Hollywood stage. And then it's so, you know, almost Lawrence of Arabia, you know, style. And and, and David Lean, you know, even said that Lawrence of Arabia, he used this film as inspiration on how to shoot landscape. And you can tell that you can, you know, the classic shots from that film. It's interesting, the push and pull of this movie, because it is like, it feels very quaint. Then it feels very large, like unlike anything you've ever seen. And it must have been in the fifties, so many different ideas coming at, at you that I kind of think of this movie, like Ben Hur, like, Oh wow. The sum of its parts are kind of, so overwhelming to an audience that this has to be a classic because it it actually has every element of a Western that you would want. So if you're going to pick one to put in a time capsule, this might be it because it's got, it's got the, you know, the good guy who's not necessarily good. It's got the vistas. It's got the romance. It's got the comedy. But I don't know if it all congeals perfectly, but it's all there. Yeah, except what really separates it from Ben-Hur, which came out right after this, is that Ben-Hur gets tons of Oscars, makes tons of money. The Searchers did well at the box office. It doesn't get a single Oscar nomination. Like, nobody at the time looked at this and even gave it, like, a screenplay nom. Wow. Yeah, they were just, they had no idea what to do with it, which is why it's shocking to me that Ben-Hur is, like, a hundred, which we're already right. kind of on the fence about. And The Searchers is all the way up at number 12. 12. I mean, hmm. that's got to be the influence of, like, Spielberg, Scorsese, Schrader, everybody just talking about it, right? Right. Well, I mean, look, it'll be interesting to kind of compare and contrast, you know, this and High Noon. We're, we're kind of building a lot of different types of Westerns and what kind of belongs on this list. Yeah, there are way more subversive Westerns on this list than there are straightforward Westerns. Right. I mean, I think it's like, what, one to four? Well, is a straightforward Western kind of like our equivalent to what a modern-day superhero movie is? Is, is a straightforward Western, you know, our Ant-Man and Wasp? You know, which is... A great, fun movie, but is it going to be on the list? You know, I don't know. I, you know, As I don't know. As opposed to like The Dark Knight? Oh, well, or- the dark, yeah, yeah. No, but <laughs> yeah. that, that yeah, yeah, I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, if you just look at Death Wish, you know, which comes out only a, a handful of years later, uh, I mean, there's elements that are similar. You know, this idea of a lone man, even though he's not a lone man in this, it's, you know, out on a mission to, you know, to save the virtue of a young woman. The idea that even these women don't want to be saved. Jodie Foster doesn't want to be saved at the end of Taxi Driver, you know, uh, you know, and, and I think there's an argument that possibly Debbie would be fine if she hadn't been saved. I totally agree. I think that he literally scoops her up and brings her home. I, I, I don't think she was begging to be rescued. Yeah, because, I mean, many people point to a woman named Cynthia Ann Parker as, mm-hmm. like, the original inspiration for this story. Right. You know, in Cynthia Ann Parker, she was a woman who was captured by the Comanches. She was with the Comanches for 24 years, from the time she was a little girl up until um, she was older. And her, her uncle, who was a Texas Ranger, dedicated his life to finding her. He finally did find her. He finally brought her back. And she was miserable. She hated being back in civilization. And her family said once that the only time they ever saw her happy was when they slaughtered a cow and she danced on the entrails and ate the liver raw. Wow. And and that maybe she should have never come back. And her story is really interesting, too, because like she wound up, you know, she had a bunch of kids while she was also in the Comanche tribe. One of her sons wound up becoming a chief himself and then like retracing the story of his mother. And so these two families who were incredibly different collided through her story. This is dark, but this happened to like a branch of my family 
two sort wow. of sort of sort of sort of sort of a very distant relative not in texas um named hannah dustin and hannah dustin was a woman who was also kidnapped by a tribe um she had a young baby she was still nursing and the tribe took her baby and like smashed its head against a tree Oof. uh rode off with her she lived with them for a little bit and then she killed her way to freedom and like uh escaped back to her farm and when she was halfway home, um, day hadn't started yet. The daylight hadn't come out. She realized that nobody might believe her what had truly happened to her. So she went back to the tribe um, and she found all the people that she had killed on her escape and scalped them and then came back again with the scalp so that wow. people would believe her. It's interesting the way that they even portray people who have been kidnapped by Native Americans in this film. When they go to that fort, you know, and they kind of suss out this room of, not prisoners, but it, 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 it looks like they're going to an insane asylum. You know, everyone's like, <laughs> you know, they, they look like they've literally been, like, operated on and, uh, you know, lost their minds. Yeah, they're, like, shrieking over dolls. They're acting very lobotomized. They're staring. Yeah. I mean, the, the two little girls with the twin blue eyes who just stare. Yeah, blankly. it's very That's shining. Like more shining than anything I've ever seen. And... But then you go like, all right, so is this movie, like, where is the movie's point of view? Because if that's what we're showing, I mean, because we're at one point we're showing, you know, Debbie wanting to kind of be there. And on the other side, you're seeing, you know, these women that have literally gone insane. Which makes you think. Uh, yeah. I was thinking this watching that scene, like, well, Debbie seems okay. Debbie's yeah. still talking like she's at the mall. Yeah. Is Scar a better chieftain? Like, is Scar a nice guy? Like, is he? did he treat her better than the other people treated these girls? Well, I think that you, when you see Scar interact with Ethan, you would argue that, yeah, he at least has, uh, you know, he is different. I mean... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What if Scar wasn't named Scar? Okay. Which we think of as, like, the Lion King villain, 100%. honestly. What if he was just named, like, White Feather? Yeah, in a weird way... I think that would make this movie more interesting because Scar, you know, feels like a scary person. And that's even without the Lion King connotation. It, it, I don't even know if we have to get into Wild Goose Flying in the Night, uh, which is the wife that is given to Martin uh, midway through the movie that he literally kicks out of bed. Uh, you know, she's nothing but sweet, and he's so disturbed by this woman that he basically physically, you know, attacks her. I mean, you know, and, and but like he treats this woman less than the same way that Ethan would treat this woman less than. So, but yet he's supposed to be one eighth, you know, Comanche. He has this idea that I don't know. It's an interesting movie. It's like I'm like every time I think I understand what's going on. You know, something different is going on. Yeah, because, like, I was studying Martin's reactions in this film pretty closely. Like, there's that scene where they're in they're in a shootout with Scar very early on yeah. in the film, and they've crossed the river, um, and everybody's still around. Ward Bond is still there. Everybody's there. And he's shooting at the Comanche, and then he suddenly, like, throws his gun away. Like, he can't believe he's shooting at the Comanche. Yeah. And then he hides his face, and he looks horrified with himself, but then he grabs the gun again. And I was like, what is happening there with Martin? yeah. And then, yeah, like what makes, I think, the scene with his wife really painful is, A, that woman just seems very sweet. Very know? sweet. She Lovely. seems very sweet. But the way that they structure their scenes together, she's helping them. Right. She's making them coffee. She's being very kind. She tries to talk to him earnestly in a yeah. scene that looks actually emotional. Like she's trying to tell him something and she's trying to tell him something out of concern. 
And then he kicks her out of bed and it's like a funny note. And then she's murdered. Right. And it, the, there's, it's so cruel. I agree. And, and you're supposed to, I think as an audience go, well, Ethan is the enlightened one. If we're talking about the buddy cop cliches here, that is what we're supposed to be seeing, like two sides. But in a weird way, they, they kind of bond over the mistreatment of this person, which is bonkers. And then the film kind of also leaves a sort of trail of breadcrumbs where they're like, there's a chance that she was going to go rat them out to Scar. And you're like, yeah. well, we don't know. And they yeah. don't know. Nobody knows. Well, I'll talk about one thing that I feel like they made a very strong choice about in this movie is uh, the way that Martin goes to bed when he's angry. I mean, this guy is always like, Meh, just pulling his sheets over. Get out of here. And and it was so crazy. Like, I was like, how many times are they going to show him getting angry in bed and pulling the sheets over? It was so like 12 year old boy. Like, I, well, if you, I can't watch TV, then I'm never getting up. Like, you know, it's like, it just That's made me right. laugh. Poor Lori. Why is she going to marry this overgrown toddler? I know. But I will say when uh, Martin gets into a fight with uh, Lori's like soon to be husband, that was a great, messy fight. That was not your traditional cowboy fight. And whenever I can see a fight in a film that feels like a real fight, I am all in. I want to see because I feel like fighting they're in biting general. Each other. Oh yeah, they, it's so <laughs> like they're biting each other immediately. Like they jump at each other. It's sloppy. They're just they keep on fighting. It, there is something so real about that fight, and I love that. Uh, and I, I love how excited the women are that some excitement's happening. Oh, yeah. Like, like, let's, oh, these men are fighting? Out of the way. Let me look. And Lori's <laughs> like, I will grin at this. I get this. I get this moment. I've been stuck at this house. Please wrestle for me. You know, here's here's actually a quote about Jeffrey Hunter. Okay. Um, from Marilyn Monroe. Oh, wow. I want to hear what she thought about yeah. him. Marilyn Monroe called Jeff the acme of young American manhood and said that he just looked like he stepped off a college campus. He's extremely handsome, but that's not what impresses me. He's sort of an all-encompassing type of magnetism that is a walking advertisement for marriage. Oh, wow. Right? Interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. He's really into Pouty Martin. But yeah, when he comes home and he's like, Lori, I wrote you one letter in five years. Yeah. Why didn't you wait for me? And by the way, it looked like he wrote that letter after he kicked that woman out of bed. So why did he have to even include that? Because... He knew that she was going to be murdered. Like you could have just erased that from uh, from the letter real easy. Would have not gotten her upset at all. Do you know how hard it took him to write a letter? Oh yeah, he, he couldn't, couldn't even read. No, oh, he wrote a real. Oh, I didn't even think about that. He couldn't undo all his work. That took him like six months <laughs> to get through. That you know, the ending of this movie is uh, is different. You know, um, the ending of the Searchers was apparently going to be like Ethan is about to shoot Debbie. When he says, I'm sorry, girl, shut your eyes. But when Debbie looks at him fearlessly and innocently, Ethan lowers his gun. You sure favor your mother, he says softly. And he puts on his gun. He doesn't shoot her. That like, kind of famous scene where you know Ethan gets in front. And I thought that was an interesting thing and drives home that point that we were talking about a little bit earlier, that um, there was a relationship there between Martha and Ethan. And I think that that, that ending is way more interesting to me. Than the way that it's kind of done now. Yeah, because, you know, when I hear like Scorsese and Spielberg talk about the ending, you know, Godard talk about the ending, they seem so moved by his choice not to kill Debbie. Yeah. And I feel like I'm going to get yelled at, but I've never really bought it. I don't no. either. He seems so entrenched in his attitude. Yes. So, I mean, only a few minutes before he's saying that the women who have been kidnapped by the Comanches and then here in this asylum are not white. 
And I don't really believe his redemption. I don't really believe that he's not going to kill her. Because the main thing he does is he lifts her up in the air, just like he did when she was a little kid. Mm -hmm. And suddenly he takes it all back. Yeah. And I guess I don't know if it's me knowing the ending too much before I really saw the film, which I don't think I did the first time I saw it. But this is me watching it for the first time. I never felt that tension. I was never that scared of him. Maybe it was all the comic beats. So maybe... Maybe I just didn't care if Debbie lived because I didn't really care about her. But this is what I'm saying. The movie doesn't fully connect the dots. There's a lot of good ideas here that are – that I think leave you a little unfulfilled and especially in the third act of this film. But yet other people are walking away going, it's the best. It's amazing. The ending – I think that what people really react to in the ending is like it's very Clint Eastwood, you know, which – you know, it's like he comes in in the beginning and he leaves at the end and he doesn't come in and he's wounded and, you know – he did his job and he's off again. I feel like there's like a, like a, you know, very masculine kind of attitude. Like, yep, he did it and he's back by him, you know, his lonesome. But yeah. And I love that it literally ends with the door being shut on him. Yes. He doesn't even close the door himself. Is that us? You've done your job. Goodbye, Uncle Ethan. Is that John Ford saying the door is being shut on this type of person? I don't know. I mean, John Ford and John Wayne, when they work together, I think people paid attention. And this is John Wayne talking about John Ford. It's a little uh, heightened, but it's interesting to kind of hear what John Wayne, who is a complicated person, uh, thought of John Ford. I think he's probably the greatest storyteller in the business. Can't get his pipe on his mantelpiece for the awards, critic and academy that have been given to him for his work. To him, nothing is impossible for an actor. He's a hard taskmaster, but his ability commands respect. Every actor in Hollywood wants to work with him. I have only one bit of advice to the young ones. Don't ever disagree with him standing up. i able to wind up like I did. Obviously, that's a promotional piece he's talking about is relationship but you also get an idea of what kind of a taskmaster John Ford was. I mean that is a loving tribute to a man who seems incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. We love to romanticize our incredibly difficult yeah. directors. And when you look at this film and you look at the time, it's gorgeous and stunning and it really is, you know, pushing the boundaries like it it's you know, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. And you can see elements of what Quentin Tarantino did in Hateful Eight. Every, when you watch this movie, you see the imprint it made in cinema without Absolutely. a doubt. I mean, even the scene where Martin sees that his home is burning. You know, mm-hmm. he like runs over the oh, sand yeah. and he sees that shot. That is exactly what happens when Luke Skywalker runs home across the desert and sees that his aunt in their home has been burned down. Absolutely. No, for no, on purpose. Oh, I mean, and then you want to even go back and go in the prequels when Anakin finds that his mother is killed. He goes on that same kind of hunt that John Wayne does to kill all the Tuscan warriors. It's like, it's, you know, I mean, and clearly uh, George Lucas a part of this crew that is incredibly affected by him. Okay, so it's time to talk to somebody really impressive. Her name is Jolie Proudfit. She's a professor of American Indian Studies who specializes in film. She taught a lot of classes on The Searchers. She was appointed by President Barack Obama to the 2016 National Advisory Council on Indian Education. Uh, she launched a group called the Native Networkers. What they do is they promote American Indian representation in the film industry. And she even launched a film festival, the California's American Indian and Indigenous Film Festival, which has a special emphasis on films by Native American women. She's amazing. Uh 
Dr. Jolie Proudfit, welcome to Unspooled. Well, so Jolie, one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you today is that, you know, you recently founded the Native Networkers, and that's a group that has been founded to promote American Indian representation in film. And, you know, I've I've read interviews with you where you say that, you know, you really do see a lot of filmmakers get it wrong when they try to include Indian American plot lines. And I was wondering just like, what do you see as a lot of them common mistakes, oversights, frustrations that you're trying to have people improve? Unfortunately, um, when it comes to the you know Native American character, the Native American plot line in media, and in this case in film or television, it's usually uh, been brought in through a very generic lens. You know, most of these films have just really depended on stereotypes, and they haven't done the research, and they haven't engaged with Native Americans you see kind of the same stereotypical Native imagery in films or in plot lines, the same handful of tribes being used. By including Native voice or Native representation, you can get an insight into Native American life or Native American storylines or plot lines or Native American peoples, and that's something audiences haven't seen before. So what's the history of representation of Native American in film up until the searchers in the mid-50s? What's been going on from the very beginning up until half a century into the history of film? Well, the whole um, industry of cinema is really based on the backs of Native people. It's been good guy, bad guy, red man versus white man. And so um, up until the searchers, you know, you saw a lot of these portrayals of uh, Native peoples as the enemy, as being disposable, um, highlighting manifest destiny as though, you know, this was a good thing. Um, sometimes it was the execution of the other to make the white hero the hero. Um, sometimes it was to uh, make the Native actor or the native plot line more savage than um, its white counterpart, again, to highlight this notion of um, the hero, the white hero. And The Searchers was an interesting film in that it allowed for some complexities. I know, you know, some people really look at The Searchers and walk away from it as this is completely a racist film. And I think there's more to it than that. I think... Um, John Wayne's character, Ethan, was an interesting character in that it allowed for this layered, deeply flawed anti-hero of a character that, you know, you see his racist tone, his racist act, his violence against women, um, Native women. Um, But I also think you see this really for the first time in a Western that forces the audience to question, you know, who is the good guy here? You know, one thing that I, f- I found really interesting is that is learning that, you know, when John Ford adapted The Searchers from a book, he took the character of Martin, of of the sort of sidekick, and he turned him from being a white character to being one-eighth Cherokee, that he wrote that into the film. Right, right. And so, you know, he didn't have to do that. Um, why he did that, I guess we'll never know. Um from my understanding, there is no um, explanation from him to that specifically, but it does allow for some complexity and the way that John Wayne's character, Ethan, treats Martin 
you know, he treats him with disrespect and disdain. He's looking at him critically from the very moment he comes back to his family's home. But I, it's just so interesting, just the disdain and just, he just looks at him with, with, you know, suspicion simply because he's one eighth native, in, in this case, Cherokee. How accurate of a representation is this of the Comanche people? Well, I don't think it's an accurate portrayal of the Comanche people. I mean, the Comanches are on their tribal flag to this day. It says Lord of the Plains. They're very well known for, for fighting back, for protecting their homeland, for protecting their women and children. And so um, they were well-known, engaged Native peoples who were not going to take any of this lying down. And, you know, this was their homeland. And so oftentimes Comanches are portrayed in Westerns and in historical dramas as these like really violent, you know, it's either Comanches, Apaches and Pawnees or your typical kind of the trifecta of the villainous Indians. But um, I, I, I do think that they have been, you know, portrayed historically as this violent group when, you know, they were just Native peoples protecting their, their home and their, their people. I would never paint one particular tribe in um, one direction or in one way. But for some reason in, in um, Western cinema, uh, Comanches, Apaches, Pawnees have been portrayed as very revered in, in a uh, kind of warrior-like, scary, bad villainous way. Yeah, and I'm curious, too, kind of related to that, what happens when you have, you know, the Navajo people playing the Comanches? Like, is there kind of a bleeding of costumes and traditions and language? Like, is everything, is that helping to add to this sort of muddle of just indistinguishability for audiences? What's happening? So one of the reasons I'm a, you know, I have a doctorate in political science and, and um, I've been teaching Native cinema for 25 years. And one of the reasons I switched over from doing so much policy work, which I still do, into working in cinema is because the, the portrayal of Native peoples matters. And that is typically what shapes how and who um, we are by general audiences. So when you ask most non-Native people what they think or what they know about Native peoples, they have these ideas that they've learned from television or movies. You have a certain set of musical, you know, background um, nuances to film that here come the Indians. And it could be a, a simple drum beat that's really off, you know, for the tribes that do use the drum. The drum is considered the heartbeat. So when it's off in terms of a beat, you know, that's something that we're looking at it kind of suspiciously. And then you see a particular look in terms of costume, whether it's the dark skin in braids, um, buckskin headdresses, or, you know, bandana for the Apache moccasins. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a hodgepodge of costumes and cultures kind of thrown into one. Have you seen, like, in your 24 years of teaching the searchers, have you seen people's attitudes shift towards it? I think having the opportunity for people to engage in real conversation about it um, provides for that shift. So, you know, people are fearful of expressing, am I supposed to like this? Am I supposed to be entertained? 
by it. But I do think um, I do. I have seen a shift in how people look at that film. You know, um, when I was growing up, the film that I loved um, as a kid was Billy Jack. Loved Billy Jack. And I didn't have any heroes to, to see on the screen that were people of color or native. And Billy Jack was the first character, albeit he was a non-native person. But as a kid, I didn't know this. He was, a, this, you know, mixed blood, you know, native that came back from Vietnam. And he was going to um, secure justice for these young people. And so I cheered him on and gosh, I loved that character. And, and then as an adult teaching those films, oh my gosh, they're so stereotypical and so goofy. (laughs) And, you know, and I would, I was like, I cannot believe I idolized this character, but I idolize what he represented. So I do think there's an opportunity for dialogue and for people to change and for people to have real conversations. So, you know, sometimes what we see on the screen is not necessarily what we see on the screen. And um, I think The Searchers is one of those films that if you pay attention and you think about those characters, I think John Ford's layering of John Wayne's character, Ethan, um, being such a vile, despicable, um, anti-native uh, character really allows for the opportunity to examine Native humanity. Um, doesn't go far enough. You know, the, 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 the violence against women, Native women, uh, Martin's character, he inadvertently marries this Native woman who... Uh, they position as the kind of fat ogre native woman. There's a scene where she tries to, you know, comfort him and crawl into bed with him and he kicks her and she like rolls down the hill. And I'm just like that scene, no matter how many times I've seen it, it just gets me. It just gets me because the violence towards her when she's just trying to um, be his wife, be his companion. I don't think John Ford would have ever have allowed for that type of a scene, if that was a white woman or if that was a fat white woman, an unattractive white woman. So that's where the racism still lies. But, you know, these are things that we can pick apart and have conversations about. But, you know, the violence against Native women is a real issue in this country and in Canada. And one of my personal goals is to make sure that the role of Native women in film and media, that presentation and our representation there is, is elevated and that we are reflected in um, in a more honest portrayal and in a humanistic way. Thank you again so, 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 so much. This has been really fantastic. Thank you for everything. I really appreciate you just sharing all your insights with us today. Sure, sure. Thank you for um, inviting me to do that. You know, violence is big in this movie, too. It's 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 was this level of violence high? I mean, when you talked a little bit about it before, like when the Native Americans are running away, when Scar's running away in the river, like I think there's an idea of like, well, now we don't shoot at them because they're nursing their dead. They're retreating. We don't shoot. And John Wayne's just pop, 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 just keep on going and, you know, shooting the uh, the, you know, the Native American in the eye and and threatening to shoot, you know, Debbie. Like there's a lot of gun violence. Is this more than we are used to seeing at this point? Well, I think it is interesting to really look at. Like when he shoots, say, 
the corpse in the eye. I mean, here's what they do to that sound effect. Listen to it. Listen to the impact of the gun. Jorgensen! Why don't you finish the job? What good did that do you? I mean, listen to that echo, you know, and a lot of it is kind of, yes, they're in a canyon, but that is an amped up echo. Like John Ford wants those bullets to really, really register. Well, I feel like whenever a gun is shot here, you feel that. I mean, it really, the gunfire is deliberate and not, I I grew up in the idea of the 80s and these Joel Silver movies where bullets are firing all the time. Every shot in this movie counts, even when they're rapid fire shots. That's true. But then like, there's just these weird moments where they cap off a violent scene, like him shooting three people in the back while using Martin as bait with comedy that I don't feel like totally works. Like here, listen to the music cue right after right after the whole setup where they go after um, the man who's trying to rob them in the middle of the night. We? Why, you just staked me out there like a piece of bait. You went and built up the fire. You fixed it so I could get my brains blown out. What if you'd missed? Never occurred to me. Yeah, when I heard that cue, I was like, what are we watching like, you know, watching like an old episode of like uh, Beverly Hillbillies or something like that? It's it's a crazy TV kind of cue. There's a great interview with John Wayne on Phil Donahue, Phil Donahue show. It's an hour long. I watched a lot of it in sections. You know, here uh, it's John... Wayne in 1975, 76, and he's talking about like how he's been misperceived. He's like, you know, they always said I was very right wing, but I wasn't. I voted for the equal number of Democrats that I did Republicans. And, you know, he's talking about his image and a lot of stuff. But there is one section I found really interesting. And I and if you're interested in all in John Wayne, watch it because it's an interesting puff piece that allows him to go in different directions. But this is about violence in films. And naturally, uh, you'd get the impression of uh of uh, quick, cold, uh, violent reaction. But actually, in my pictures, it's been more illusion than than violence. In the present-day pictures, where they put a liver, a calf's liver on somebody and put an electric uh, charge in there and blow it up in slow motion, naturally, that that is, is a bad taste. That's why I hate the way they've rated pictures, because... Uh, before, it depended on a man's capabilities, his, his uh, good taste, and uh, his, uh, how far he'd gambled to make a risque picture. And his peers would only give him the seal if, uh, if they felt that it was worthy of uh, an emotion picture. You've shot more people, though, than anybody in the history of the business. Uh, but you've never seen me in the same shot shoot a man. It was always, it was a rule then that you could only, you shoot like this and then you cut to the guy taking it. You mean mean, you couldn't have a two shot of you shooting? Never, never. He's a person who commits a lot of violence but says it's almost like, well, it's classy. But I would argue that him shooting the eyes out of that Native American is shocking. I mean, you hear about it. You don't need to see it, but it is like a, I don't know. It's it's. I don't know what's worse, to see it or to hear about it. Because we see him do a lot of incredibly violent things. I don't know if it's worse to see it. What do you think? I go back and forth. Like, 
like I will get on a soapbox a lot about how I hate that like in superhero movies they'll kill like gigantic planes of bad guys and it right. doesn't matter because you don't see them and they're, they're just sort of CG like there's a lot of gigantic wasted death. Oh, I mean Superman in PG-13 hit that movie? Yeah. You're watching just thousands upon thousands of people die. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's hard for me to watch movies where the good guys kill a lot of people and we're supposed to be like, yeah. You know, so right. in a way, I, I don't like a ton of gratuitous violence, but I also do sometimes buy the argument that it is ethical. Right. To be well, bloody. I mean, look, I love John Wick. I will go and watch those movies. I mean, those movies are incredibly violent, you know, films. And uh, I like... I like an action movie without a doubt. I mean, I'm all in, but I think it's an interesting point of view that he has. That's like, well, it's different though. It's different. It's not different because you weren't allowed to do it. Number one. And, you know, and it, and it feels like in that moment, it's, it's a, it's an older, you know, an older generation going, I don't like what these new kids are doing. We, we did it better. It's like, well, you did it better because, you know, you couldn't have done what they're doing now. Cause I guarantee you, based on what we know about John Ford, it would have been incredibly bloody. It would have been like Wild Bunch if he would have been able to make it like that. So, Amy, obviously we know this movie didn't win any Academy Awards. It's not it didn't no- get nominated. didn't get nominated. Um, I think it was genuinely well-received, right? Were there any really negative uh, points of view about this film? There were actually a fair amount of meh reviews. Okay. Um, Variety. I'll, I'll, I picked out the one from Variety. There were like a bunch to pick from, um, but I picked Variety. Uh, it says... The Searchers is somewhat disappointing. There's a feeling that it could have been so much more. They call it overlong and repetitious at 119 minutes. They say there's subtleties in the basically simple story that are not really adequately explained. They refer to John Ford's labored attempts at comedy relief. And they say that while the John Ford directorial stamp is unmistakable, that it concentrates on the characters and it establishes a definite mood, it's just not sufficient to overcome the many weaknesses of the story. So this is not a review that really took issue on it for... For what it was saying about the West, it just thought it was badly done. I mean, and there's elements of what they just said there that I don't totally disagree with. I guess my final question to you is, is there Simpsons? Sort of. Okay. Sort of. I could not find a great Simpsons, but I found a visual reference. This is from Treehouse of Horror 19. Okay. Um, It's from the segment where Homer starts killing all of these famous people uh, to like sell ads or something. It's okay. like Prince is in heaven. This is before Prince had died, I think. Um, Krusty the Clown is in heaven because he's also killed him. And all of these famous people are up in heaven watching a commercial with John Wayne in it. Okay. And it opens with a cartoon look of that searcher's door with frame shops. We can't just sit here while they exploit our images. Hey, John Wayne, have you heard about StockSwapper.org's low, low transaction fees? Sounds like quite a deal, Pilgrim. Take our word for it, even though it's visual, that it is a a definite uh, homage to the searchers. Um, So this movie is pretty high on the list. It's number 12. Do you think that this is too high? Do you think it's the right place? What, what, What are your thoughts here on the AFI list? Do you think it belongs? I think it's too high. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I have been wrestling with this movie for half my life now. Right. And I have gone on every single angle of it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I would be a better person if I saw the same searchers that apparently Spielberg does, but I right. don't. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And so 12 just seems incredibly high. 12 feels like us giving too much credence to the directors of today saying, this is where everything I make comes from. And it is true that so much of what they make 
does come from this. I mean, like the close encounter shot where like the aliens are bursting through the red, red windows of the outside yeah. house. A hundred percent. That just comes straight from this film. But is that a 12? Is that worth a 12? No, you see, I believe that the top 20, if we're really talking about this, have to be films that not only influenced, but somehow changed cinema and in a way that is so engaging. And we can talk about that from Wizard of Oz to 2001. One is probably the most watched film that we were ever going to talk about on this list. And one is almost like an art piece, you know, but they both made such giant contributions that you cannot deny them. And yes, they influence. I think every film on this list is going to influence other films. Absolutely. But I think that in that top 20, they have to come out and be working on full thrusters. They have to be more flawless than this. Yes. This film has a lot of, I think, tonal flaws. I I would agree. And I mean, you look at a movie like In the Heat of the Night that tackles the idea of racism, the CD underbelly. We're still tackling it now in movies that are coming out this very year. Uh, But that movie, I would watch that movie over this movie. You know, and we're just talking about, you know, these are movies that are roughly made in, in within 10 years of each other. Uh, and I think that there's more of a an adept hand at it. I think here we're really taking people's perspectives, their love for something and putting it high. And I think when you see this list again, this is going to go down. Now, here's something interesting. This movie uh, went from 96 on the original list up to 12. That's a huge jump. So what's going on there? Like who weighed in in 2007 to be like, this goes all the way up. I don't know if this is the directors that we're so familiar with saying, no, no, this is a movie that's so influential to me. And you know, in a way, this film makes me think of like, you know, like the like the world's ugliest dog competition or something <laughs> where like you just fall for something because you feel like it's your misshapen little monster. Right. I mean, this film is a misshapen little monster, and it's fascinating to talk about. Like, I'm really enjoying talking about it with yeah. you. And I can imagine being being Scorsese and thinking, like, this is my monster. You know, I see the beauty in this film. I found my tribe. We all see the beauty in this film. We think that this is the greatest film ever made and becoming protective of it, becoming defensive of it, because this is a film that's very easy to attack. You can just flat out be like, it's lame and racist. And you wouldn't totally be wrong. Like, you could argue that point. And you can also argue that somebody who says that isn't seeing the full picture of the film, which makes it great to talk about, which makes it, you know, feel maybe more valuable than the actual film itself is. I still believe that at the end of the day, when you're watching these movies, they have to entertain you as a film and not as a historical piece. You know, we're not, we're not buying the stories behind the camera. We're buying the stories in front of the camera. And I think it has to work at least on that level. It makes me want to revisit High Noon because as we get further away from it, I kind of go like, maybe I misjudged that. I I know I've talked about that a couple times here, but because I think there is something that works so much better in that film than here. And that's a movie that also subverts traditional Western tropes. Yeah, and they both open with a song that sort of sets up the story. You know, like, here's everything that's going to happen in High Noon. And here, the opening song of The Searchers, Basically, flat out says, what makes a man ride away? It's telling you what the ending's going to be. What makes him ride away at the end? What makes him not able to stay put? I mean, by the way, In the Heat of the Night has that same kind of opening song. (laughs) It doesn't, like, lay it all out. But, you know, and then we see how it all influenced Will Smith to do the Men in Black songs (laughs) and uh, Wow Wow West. (gasps) Well, Paul, since you brought up rappers, have you heard the Rappin' Duke? Uh, no. (laughs) It is a very, very early, very early 
like 1982 hip hop song done in the style of John Wayne. Wait a second. So I, let's just get. Okay. Let's just get. Let's just get. Uh, uh, I'm filling the groove now, Pilgrim. Party over here. Party over there. A boo. Enough of this. No, no, the no. Way we do it. Whoop, whoop. East Coast. West Coast. Ugh. Texas. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's not even... I'm glad I never heard about that. I should never have heard about that. <laughs> sorry. Sorry to everyone who had to hear about that. Uh, all right, Amy, let's roll the die. See what we got. It is 68. 68 is... Okay, what? so... All right, this is interesting to me because here's the thing. <laughs> we have said this die is cursed. 68 is, is Unforgiven, <gasps> which what? we have been talking about in this thing, which I have not even thought about until I saw this movie. So the die has brought us to 68. Now, I know there's going to be a lot of conspiracy theory out there, but I'm going to tell you that this is not – we have not faked this dice roll. That is 68 is Unforgiven. The die is creating a story. And by the way – I would argue the die is already creating a story within the heat of the night into the searchers into this. All of these films make a story. All of the films make a story. And maybe that's just because they all are interconnected. This is crazy. We have two Westerns in a row. This is good, though. This is good. This is good. Let's really do, let's really commit to the Western. I love it. All right, Unforgiven. And if you don't know Unforgiven, um, take a listen to the trailer. My guess is you're calling yourself Mr. William Money. Say what? You don't look no meaner than hell, cold-blooded damn killer. I ain't like that anymore, kid. Thousand dollars reward, Will. Nobody's gonna come. So you still have that Spencer rifle, huh? Yeah. Some legends will never be forgotten. Some wrongs can never be forgiven. The man don't want to get killed. Better clear on out the back. Unforgiven. All right, so as you're getting ready to watch Unforgiven, we want you to call into the show next week. Uh, you have to get a posse together. Someone has kidnapped someone that you've loved, and you got to go after. Who are you picking? John Wayne or Clint Eastwood, and why? What do you think they bring to the table when you're forming your posse? And you know what? If you want to add someone else to that posse, you can. Who's going to be your lead? your lead man? Is it going to be John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, or maybe Sharon Stone from The Quick and the Dead? Who knows? So give us a call with your posse leader at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. We will see you next week for Unforgiven. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> 
Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I mean, Jazos. <laughs> ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.